I am Ben Doc Askins, the psychedelic science war storyteller, and this is the Anti-Hero's Journey Podcast. Hey everybody, Doc here. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want it to be possible for me to continue to make it, then I'm going to need you to go to my store at antiheroesjourney.com and buy my audiobook and my ebook in one of the many translations available, or go to shop and pick out some of my stuff t shirts and hats and pet bandanas and bikinis and scented candles and all sorts of nonsense, all the things you could ever want and never need. And get 10% off with the code, all caps, FRIEND10. Go to antiheroesjourney.com and use the code, all caps, FRIEND10 to get 10% off anything that you could ever want there. I appreciate your support. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. What's up, all you anti-heroes out there? Doc Askins coming at you with another one of my Q5 podcast episodes. It's where I ask five of my favorite questions to people who I think are awesome. And the awesome person I've got on today's episode is Melissa Lavasani. Am I saying that right? Yeah, it's perfect. Perfect. Melissa Lavasani is founder and chief executive officer of Washington, D.C.-based Psychedelic Medicine Coalition, a national association committed to creating and protecting access to psychedelic medicines through advocacy and education on a federal level. Melissa is also president of Psychedelic Medicine Advocacy and its Political Action Committee, which is dedicated to ensuring Americans are empowered to elect lawmakers that support safe, equitable access to these life-changing treatments. Prior to that, Melissa proposed Initiative 81, the Entheogenic Plant and Fungus Policy Act of 2020, the largest ballot initiative win in Washington, D.C.'s history, with 76% approval. Inspired by her own experience as a professional working mother using psychedelic medicines to overcome severe postpartum depression when the healthcare system failed her, Melissa is one of the leading voices for policy, politics, and advocacy in the psychedelic space. She is also a founding board member of the Psychedelics and Healing Initiative at the Global Wellness Institute and on the advisory boards of Drugs Over Dinner and Universal Ibogaine. Melissa has a bachelor's degree in economics from McAllister College, a master's degree in management from the University of Denver, and a master's in public policy from George Mason University. Born in Washington, D.C. to Iranian immigrants, Melissa currently lives in Northeast D.C. with her husband, Daniel, daughter Lola, age nine, son Ramsey, age six, and their two rescue dogs, Gus and Daisy. Let me summarize all of that. Liam Neeson in Taken doesn't have anything. I'm Melissa Lavasani. <laughs> Melissa, it's a pleasure having you on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Doc. <laughs> We're going to get things rolling with question number one. What's your story? Oh, my story is I am in a place in life where five years ago, things looked very different in my life. My career path was on a very different trajectory, but I was also dealing with some really heavy issues. I had a really difficult pregnancy with my second child. And after he was born, happy and healthy, uh, I took a, a, a real dive. My mental health took a really big dive. I was experiencing severe postpartum depression, panic attacks, anxiety. I had no hope for the future. I was convinced that my brain was 
eternally damaged. And, you know, I, I there was no light at the end of the tunnel. And without having to ever have dealt with any really serious mental health issues in my past, I mean, obviously life has its up and downs, but, you know, I was a college athlete and I was taught how to persevere through those things and how to work through them. But this period in my life, I just like could not get a grip on anything. And so, you know, I was a completely absent mother. I was an absent wife. I was barely holding it together at work. Quite honestly, I was abusing Adderall and cannabis to try and make it through my day. I would take Adderall in the morning to get me to get to work. I would take cannabis at night to get me to go down and go to sleep. I'd have many restless nights though, despite all that. And I really was ready to take my life and, you know, let my family move on without me. Uh, I had convinced that I was the source of all the problems in our family. And if my husband could just move on with another woman who would be the mother that I couldn't be and the wife that I couldn't be to him, things would at least turn out better for them and I would be put out of my misery. So I was introduced to the concept of psychedelic drugs for mental health through a podcast that a friend recommended. And it was with Paul Stamets, who probably many of your listeners are very familiar with. I had never, I, I knew about psilocybin mushrooms. I'd never tried them. I'd never tried any psychedelic before in my life. I was never curious about it. I assumed that those were drugs that were for burnouts and people that like just wanted to escape reality. And it really wasn't for me. But what he said in that podcast and what I kind of dug into after I listened to that really opened up my eyes up to a, a, some new hope for myself and, you know, for the healthcare system. So, you know, at the time I was, I was a government employee. My husband was a government employee. I was about to go start looking around for magic mushrooms in Washington, DC. You know, we've spent 20 years of our career here and had a like really great network of people that we've worked really hard to build. And we did, we weren't quite sure how to navigate this. I was, I was willing to try anything because to me, my life was on the line. And I needed to make a, I needed a drastic intervention. And at the time, just therapy was not working for me. I was really disengaged from it. I was hell bent on not taking antidepressants. I've had a couple friends that have taken their lives while on antidepressants. And I just, I didn't, trying mushrooms for my postpartum depression was truly a last ditch effort. So we figured out how to grow them. So we grew them in our house in our, actually our, our bedroom. And we had a little science experiment up there. And I began with microdosing. I was really uncomfortable with the idea of a macrodose and, you know, kind of that ego dissolution. I had no, no experience with that and very uncomfortable with it. So I started microdosing as a way to kind of get my feet wet in the mushrooms and Within my third day of microdosing, I played with my son for the first time and he was two and a half years old. So that was a very dramatic change in me that we all witnessed and kind of set my life into a completely different direction. So I continued microdosing and I started to see all of my symptoms of depression just slowly wane away. I felt very, I suddenly felt very connected with my body again my suicidal ideation had completely gone away. I was really felt like there was finally a light at the end of the tunnel, but I ran out of mushrooms. Our second attempt at growing them got contaminated and I was slowly starting to dip back into my depression and 
almost serendipitously, a, a girlfriend of mine in New York City was like, I just discovered this guy who hosts ayahuasca ceremonies. And this was extremely helpful for me. Why don't you try it? And I was familiar with ayahuasca because I just done a deep dive into psychedelics and what their potential is, what, you know, what, why our federal policy is the way it is. And I, I, I knew what was going on with the veteran community in ayahuasca. So I figured, why not take a chance, take a train up to New York City for a weekend, do a few ayahuasca ceremonies and, and you know, see what happens. And from that point on, after that weekend and after a, a couple other subsequent weekends, I felt like very compelled to explore this world of psychedelics, not only just for my own personal healing, but seeing the dramatic change in me and seeing what the actions I took after my ayahuasca experiences and like trying to get my life back together and how I was doing personally compelled me to go down this road. So at the time, the Decriminalized Denver campaign was going on with Magic Mushrooms and we reached out, me and my husband were both working kind of the policy field in DC. We reached out to the Denver campaign and we said, you know, what is Denver City Council saying about this? What's the public saying? Just just trying to get a feel on on where things stood with that, if there's even a, a chance of that winning. And slowly we started getting introduced to people in the drug reform world. We continued to having conversations, not really knowing where this would lead me and certainly not expecting um, <laughs> to be in a place where I am now. But, you know, thinking that if, a campaign were to start in DC. We have really great relationships with some of the DC city council members. You know, we could be really helpful and effective in having conversations behind closed doors because, you know, we we have these prior relationships. That quickly turned into me running init- the Initiative 81 campaign. We launched that in January 2020. I almost didn't do that campaign because, you know, at the time, I was healing from my postpartum. I was getting my life back. I was finally building my relationships with my my son and rebuilding my relationship with my daughter, which was absent for three years, basically. Rebuilding my marriage with my husband. And I said, you know, I don't know if I can do this campaign, but something inside me felt very compelled to share my story. So I took a chance and we re- we launched that campaign in January 2020. And then... COVID happened in March 2020, which is very challenging for a signature gathering campaign where you're going out and talking to people, getting their physical signature, and it forced us to think really creatively. It, it kind of made our one of our, our major funder of the campaign, Dr. Bronner's, kind of like reevaluate, should we even do this? Because this is like a significant mountain to overcome. But I, we came up with a plan and I was so confident that if we could just share what was going on in the research community with psychedelics and share my personal story as well as other personal stories of DC residents that have have had to go into the underground to to heal from their own issues, I knew at the time that we could run a really effective campaign. And also we have political campaign experience too. So I knew kind of what what we what we were in for. But yeah, we went we won uh, November 2020 with 76%. That was that was mind blowing, but also at the same time, I I had a feeling and intuition in me the entire time that we were going to win by seven at least seventy percent. I mean, I was telling the press that, and our entire campaign staff was like, you know, you got to stop putting the seventy percent number out there because 
you know, you're setting us <laughs> up to fail. Ballot initiatives usually don't win by that much. And the, you know, the cannabis decriminalization campaign won by 64%. And there's no way that psychedelics are, are going to be more popular than cannabis. But we were. And we did that because, you know, I was so open and honest with sharing my story and what I had gone through. And I think I was really relatable to a lot of people. And, and, and I think in a way, while 2020 was a really difficult year for so many people, it really helped this campaign kind of capitalize on this unveiling of the mental health crisis that was kind of underlying the entire, you know, for a while in our country. And that campaign gave people hope that, you know, maybe there is there is another option outside of, you know, taking an antidepressant for a very long time with with a lot of times with very minimal results and or just grinding it out in, in therapy and, you know, hoping that one these ideas will stick with you and, you know, that all the money that you're investing out of pocket into therapy is going to pay off. I think that psychedelics do provide a ray of light in a lot of people's really dark times. And I was really enjoying that process of you know, sharing my story, you know, talking to other advocates, talking to DC council members, talking to community members about this. And I wanted to continue my work and take the skills that I have learned outside of psychedelics in my regular career and apply it to this issue. Because what more important thing to be working on than trying to improve the mental health of people in this country, you know, this is the basis of everything. I think it's mental health is obviously plays a role in addiction. It plays a role in crime, plays a, a role in how well you do as a student, how well you do as a worker. You know, if you're, if you are not well mentally, that impacts your entire life. And I think so many lives are lost and so many people don't live up to their potential just because they, they have these unresolved mental health issues that just not, maybe not necessarily go unnoticed, but, you know, just, there's, there's no real treatment for these things. So I wanted to continue my work in this world. Obviously, we're in the nation's capital. I have a background in public policy. I have a lot of relationships with people that work in and around the Hill. And why not use that for good for the psychedelic space? So we our campaign ended in November 2020. I began to put together the pieces of Psychedelic Medicine Coalition, and we launched that in January 2021. And it's been a really rewarding and challenging period in my life. But, you know, we have educated 300 member offices about the issue of psychedelics. We have provided really critical education to members of Congress about what's going on in the world of psychedelic medicine. We've hosted a couple of briefings in Capitol Hill, featuring some many notable names inside the psychedelic space and outside as well. You know, we've had Rick Doblin, we've had Tim Ferriss come and speak to staffers and, and members about psychedelic medicine. And, you know, we are we're making some amazing progress. And what we're trying to do is in, and that is to lay the foundation for the future of healthcare policy with psychedelics. You know, when I started this, I wanted to hit the ground running and, you know, you know, see if we get a bill introduced and, and, you know, just make immediate progress. But when we started this in January 2021, I realized we needed to back up a bit that psychedelics exists in a little bit of a bubble and we needed to provide some background information for members of Congress about what was going on and what this is about and what this is not about. And, you know, a lot of our advocacy strategies based on 
similar movements like the cannabis reform movement, what mistakes were made in cannabis and, and how do we not fall into those pitfalls so that we are looking at progress in like the 10 to 20 year frame instead of like the 30 to 40 year frame, which is where cannabis is. And how can we bring together the psychedelic space to speak with one unified voice to have concise asks that, you know, are, are based on consensus that we've built amongst this very broad and vast ecosystem that is psychedelic medicine. And, you know, my most recent projects has, has been psychedelic medicine advocacy in the political action committee, because we acknowledge that lobbying is one thing, and it's really important to do it and do it right and be efficient with it. But how you really change policies in this country is as you change the culture. And there are, well, the psychedelic space has been in existence for a very long time, well before I entered it. I'm definitely on the on the newcomer side of it. But, you know, a, a lot of our country is really unfamiliar with what this is about. And and I re- I acknowledge that the media is really driving the education of this with a, a lot of the American people. And we needed a vehicle to do some messaging and education for communities that wouldn't seek this out, you know, like the Republican voters in suburban Virginia who are familiar with what's happening, but think it's a really out there idea and wouldn't ever call a senator of theirs to say, you know, why aren't you supporting the research of psychedelic medicine? It's, it's to educate those populations, conservative communities, where opposition can get bred in this. Because to be honest, a lot of the psychedelic ecosystem resides in California, in Oregon, in Colorado, in these super progressive states. But we need to be speaking to all Americans about this because this affects all Americans. And the one killer of this issue could be an opposition that is created. And that's what we've seen with cannabis is it wasn't as strategic as it should have been. There wasn't, it was assumed that the cultural shift with cannabis had already happened. And it happened with certain populations, and it's definitely has, has made progress in, in the most recent years. But from the very beginning, they weren't reaching out to communities that were on the fence or were not supporting this and, and to get them on board. So our approach is a bit different. You know, Be really strategic in what we're asking for, focus on the science of this, and know we're going to have to slow roll this um, with Congress and move incrementally forward on this issue over time. And then to hit the other piece of it, which is getting the public engaged in this in a meaningful way. And, and that's not letting that reside in one side of politics or one subculture of, of American society, but making this inclusive of all voices in the United States and all kinds of experiences and, and, getting, and getting Americans around this issue of psychedelic medicine and seeing that as a possibility and getting them to voice their concerns about the action or lack of action happening in Congress and getting them engaged in it, because that that's really powerful. It's one thing for an advocate to go to the Hill and talk about this. Um, that is important, but also getting a member's constituents involved and, and getting them passionate about this issue and getting the constituents to also go to the member of Congress, because ultimately that's their job. You know, they need to listen to their constituents. They've got to address the issues that they care about. And and then that's when 
shifts start to happen in this country is when those two worlds come together and create enough momentum behind a movement to actually make something move. So we're in the very beginning stages of our work, and it does seem like a long slog at times where we, you know, we're having the same conversation over and over again with members of Congress, and sometimes we are answering very basic questions. The most recent one was, is there a difference between MDMA and psilocybin mushrooms? So like we are breaking it down at that level with people's, you know, some staffers are very familiar with this, whether they have their own personal experiences in college or whatever. And then some staffers have zero knowledge and think that this is a fringe idea. And our goal is when we walk out of that office that they see this as potential for something positive in the near future. We're doing the groundwork for a lot of really important policy changes to come with our healthcare system. Strategic Navigators reduced my income tax bill by over 50%. These guys save entrepreneurs anywhere from 40 to 60% on their income taxes. Click the link in the description to schedule a call and see what these guys can do for you. If you enjoy paying as much as possible in taxes, then just ignore everything I just said. God, what an incredible story you have. You. you know, you gave birth to a human that's a miracle in and of itself, right? And the toll that that took on your body and on your soul created some postpartum depression for you that you had to figure out for yourself how to get out of that deep, dark hole. But as a result of figuring out how to get out of there, you've given birth to coalitions and committees and bills and policies, metaphorically speaking, that are going to bring so much life to so many moms suffering from postpartum depression and so many veterans and just humans. Just being a human on the planet is enough to kind of give you the accumulation of trauma and difficulty that you need you need a lift every once in a while you need a hand and you've kind of found your way and now you're turning around and you're making a way for everybody else and uh, i think that's beautiful that's a beautiful story thank you for sharing that with us so that means i got a transition somehow <laughs> <laughs> to question two your past is a beautiful story and i ask about your story because of you know memories in the past but let's and you've done a whole lot already but what are your intentions about the future that's the second question my intentions are to use my 20-year career in various industries. So I started my career in commercial real estate finance, which is very different than um, what I'm doing now. But also, I learned a set of skills in that career that helped me in transition to the next industry I worked in, which you know, I was starting to shift over to see um, <laughs> public policy. I was right. Yes, you were right. Liam Neeson, <laughs> particular set of skills. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like I've invested time and money into my career. And I, for a long time, I've always felt like I've had a really good career. It's very, it's been very sol solid. It's been stable. Uh, it's uh, what more could I ask for? I've been fully empl employed through multiple recessions, and you know, I've uh, shifted and adapted when I needed to adapt. Like when the real estate market fell out in 2008, I was like, I'm out of here. I, I don't want to deal with this instability. And then that's when I was like, let, let me do something that is actually will be like personally fulfilling for me. And that's when I started to get my public policy degree. And then I was working 
at a, 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 a big consulting company here locally and, you know, doing, I was working on massive projects for the U.S. Army, like creating part of the team that was creating medical countermeasures for bioterrorism attacks. So like, again, very different than what I am doing now, but it taught me to, you know, it taught me how to navigate through government bureaucracy and, and what that really looks like and how these massive projects, you know, how that money flows to these massive projects and how, and what the underlying intentions are with certain things and interesting personalities working with government too. So, and then getting my policy degree, I was like, I don't really want to be doing like uh, working on, you know, what I was doing at the time. I, I worked on medical countermeasures. I also worked on massive weapon systems that were getting developed as well. So I, that didn't really feel like the fulfilling thing that I wanted to go for. Uh, so I, then shifted to locally, like working in, for my community. Like, how can I be a force for good in the city that I I live in? And, you know, I was working in budget and finance policy for the city of Washington, D.C., and I was managing a portfolio of agencies for a very long time. And that really taught me the power of money within government and how do you make things move and where are the pressure points for making these shifts happen and what are policy implications for moving money from place X to place Y and really got an insider's perspective into the sausage factory that is the, you know, a local government. And still, I didn't feel fulfilled in a way that I expected my career to fulfill me. So when I started to have children, I was like, well, this will be the thing that like, you know, satisfies that urge to like do something good. Like maybe I'll just raise two amazing human beings and that, and that'll be it. And while I've gotten to a place where I, I appreciate that my career is still really important to me. And so when I, I think when part of my postpartum depression with my second child was like, all right, I have a family now is my time spent away from my family worth it. And I think that I went through part of the reason why I had my postpartum was like the identity crisis that I was going through at the time. Like I didn't feel like I was where I needed to be. And I honestly think I needed to hit that rock bottom to shift my entire life into something that would be extremely fulfilling. And I've taken skills from every single career in every industry that I have been in and applied it to what I'm doing now with psychedelic medicine and I do feel like I'm finally at the place now where, you know, it's not, it's not definitely not like a dream job working in the beginning stages of psychedelic medicine. The industry is really <laughs> suffering. Things are very unstable. Funding is incredibly tight right now. But at least I feel like I am, I'm using the skills that I do have for something that is honorable and good and something that will hopefully benefit my children and my children's children one day, because prior to my own mental health issues, I never understood depression. I never understood suicide. I was actually, when my one friend took his life, I was actually really angry at him. And I thought he was being really selfish, which I hate to say, but I've now learned that 
he probably thought he was doing everyone a favor by taking his life. And that's the sad part about it is that suicide and depression are just so, and addiction as well, are just so incredibly misunderstood by the general population that I had to go through it Absolutely. to really grasp what this was about and grasp how how bad things can get, how quickly. And especially for me, as I would consider myself a privileged, well-resourced person. I had a stable career. I, at the time that I was going through my mental health, I had a I had a female boss. She was a mother to young children as well. She was extremely compassionate to what I was going through, covered for me when I was missing deadlines. Like she was wonderful. What a privilege to have that, right? Because I think other people would have probably lost their jobs performing the way I was performing. I had a supportive husband. We have both sets of our parents were coming in and out of town trying to help us out. So like we had support all around us in various forms, including really amazing healthcare, where I was still spending upwards of $300 for an hour therapy session. And so in my mind, it's like, well, if me being the person I was like, I was with having all the resources that I had, like, why, why did I still almost lose my life? You know? Why was it, why did, why was it allowed to get so bad? And it's because our healthcare system is really lacking in resources and tools for people that are, are, are dealing with these kind of issues. We, we know very well how to fix a broken leg, treat somebody that is in the midst of a heart attack, or, you know, what is a protocol for somebody that gets like a breast cancer diagnosis? Like we, we know how to treat those things, but when it comes to mental health, it's like pop this pill and, you know, go talk to somebody for an hour who who might or might not be a good fit for you. And you're very much on your own and trying to find a therapist that's right for whatever you're going through and, you know, pray that things get better for you. And I find I find that really like unsatisfactory is not even the word. I find it I find it disgusting that we in our country don't put more time and effort into creating a healthcare system, a mental healthcare system that actually works for people, that actually creates productive citizens again. You know, it should be in our government's interest to create a system that gets people on their feet again, gets them to pay their taxes, you know, like, you know, we sh- they should want us to be productive. That makes for a healthier, happier a safer country, to be honest. So my intention is to use my skills to work towards this goal so that we create systems that are actually beneficial for the people in this country. Yeah. You well said that we do a great job with acute care, but we got a lot of problems to solve in chronic sort of lifetime care. And that there's a lot of good data. There's a mountain of it accumulating around, you know, average quality of life year improvements made especially whenever like mental health is addressed. So I think there's a lot of good studies out there that we can kind of push for revolutionizing a whole lot of these things here real soon. And you, you've somewhat anticipated the third question, I think, in answering the second one. The way I like to try to bridge the past to the future is with gratefulness. And you ran through a list of uh, you know support that you had there along the way. But I'm going to go ahead and ask the question anyway. What are you grateful for? Oh, man. Above and beyond anything, I am grateful that I am here. I, that when I was, (laughs) thank you. When I was going through my, my depression, you know, 
all I would think about is my children. And the one thing that kept me here from, kept me from actually taking my life was this concept that while I would be out of my pain if I took my life and I wouldn't be the burden that I was on my family, I could not get over the fact that I would be forever damaging my children if I took my life. That would be something that they would never be able to get over. It would just be something that they would be living with. And I feel like now I have an appreciation for motherhood and a gratitude for this life that, you know, maybe I didn't have before, even like even before healthy Melissa (laughs) pre-depression, I, I didn't realize what a gift it is to be on this planet at times, you know, it's, DC is a difficult city to live in at times and you can get caught up in the grind. And I think that we were very much caught up in the grind of Washington, D.C. and our careers and, you know, raising a family because it was what we, you know, it's what all of our friends were doing at the time. Like, oh, this is the natural next step. But having my postpartum kind of shut things down for me and say it, it made me realize that, like, it is a gift and the pain is a gift, you know, and the pain is a lesson that I needed to learn in appreciation for parenthood, for working motherhood, for being present here and experiencing all the things that come with life that I didn't really have. So I'm absolutely grateful, not only to the people that have been supportive of me, first and foremost, my husband, because he is an actual superhero for not only putting up with the monster that I became, but for never giving up on me and always trying to troubleshoot this with me. So I'm super grateful for him, but above and beyond anything, I'm grateful for the life that I've been given. And the work that I'm doing now is just an opportunity to kind of live through that gratitude. Way to go, Daniel. (laughs) Shout out to your husband. So with all, uh, I mean, that's so beautiful. With all of the gratefulness, all of your story, all of your intentions, now what are you creating? Yeah, I mean... I'm trying to create like a political policy powerhouse for the psychedelic space. I think with cannabis, there was so much excitement about the potential of cannabis. And obviously the focus on state level reforms and not making sure the government, the federal government was hand in hand with what was going on in the states. I think that it was a real misstep for the cannabis movement and 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 really not focusing on the science side of it was another misstep. So what we're trying to do is to emphasize the science because we know that if we could create streams of funding, streams of public funding for psychedelic research, that that slowly chips away at any kind of barrier there would be for safe access. I get criticism a lot for, you know, saying, oh, but there's already data that's existing and we research takes a long time to actually conduct and clinical trials are really restrictive and we don't need more of that. But my argument is we absolutely do. Clinical trial data, while really important, is, is usually funded by a drug sponsor. There's venture capital funding in there. 
in MAP's case, it's a public benefit corporation that's taking MDMA through, through the clinical trial process into the finish line, hopefully soon. That's been funded by philanthropists. What we really need is the federal government to put some skin in the game in the science of psychedelics, like they did in the 50s and 60s, <laughs> and create legitimate public data on psychedelic medicine. And that that data can be housed at NIH. It can be housed at, at the various other agencies at the VA. It, basically, any government agency that does any kind of research in this space should have a stream of funding for psychedelic medicine. You know, that data that comes out of that is what members of Congress view as the most trusted, as the most neutral data. And that is what is going to inform our policymakers of future policy shifts with, with this issue. And it's a way to get buy-in in a, in a really like safe container for members of Congress. You know, if you're talking about decriminalization of psychedelic medicine at a federal level, that is not a very popular issue to get behind. I think decriminalization has a, just on its own has a, a, a set of baggage that you really need to overcome. And that, that can take years and years of work to do. We've seen how decriminalization of cannabis has just been such a long slog. And, you know, quite honestly, for cannabis, it, it, there is a, it has a, a very strong criminal justice element to it that psychedelics doesn't necessarily have. So knowing that there is already a foundation of science for psychedelics, like why not the federal government, you know, house some of this research? It is really, really important for the policymakers that this exists. It's important for the public that this exists. I mean, we've seen how drug manufacturers can manipulate data to lean a certain way so that people take their drug it neutralizes that kind of influence that some of the actors in our healthcare system outside of the federal government have. And it really creates a level playing field with this issue. Well, you're creating some beautiful and powerful things in the world. And I'm grateful that you're doing all that work. That brings us around to the fifth and final question though. Who are you really, Melissa Lavasani? You sent me these questions ahead of time and I struggle with this one, but I don't think I am just like one thing. I talk a lot about motherhood and who I am as a mom, just because I'm so central to my story and my own mental health. But also, I, I am a wife. I'm a daughter. I'm an advocate. I am, I am so many things to different people. But at the end of the day, you know, I am just a human being on this planet trying to use the skills and honestly, the blessings that I do have for something hopefully really good for the world. I feel slightly uncomfortable with the attention that psychedelics does give me, but prior to this new venture in, in my life, honestly, public speaking was a thing that I, I was very, I had a very big fear of, but I'm willing to put all of my fears and insecurities to the side to advance this issue because it is so important to me that who I am is just so incredibly complex, but also really simple in that I'm just a, a person that's trying to, trying to create a system that actually works for people. And whatever personal 
professional sacrifices I have had to make. I have since left my DC government job. I am doing this full time. I'm willing to do that because I would not be here if it wasn't for psychedelic medicine. I fully believe that. I, I definitely had an expiration date before I went down this road. And I just want to be sure that all, all the moms out there that are struggling and all the parents out there that are struggling, all those professionals out there that are just putting a mask on and going to work and, you know, trying to make the best of, of their situation, that they have a tool that they could use to potentially help them and hopefully save a lot of children from losing a parent or parents from losing a child to something like this, you know, trying to trying to trying to help families who are dealing with these really heavy issues and you know feel like they they hit one dead end after another. So I'm just like a regular person who does regular things, but you know, this is this is my this is my job now and it's a joy to do this and I've never been more fulfilled in my life personally and I hope that what I'm doing ultimately leads to something good. Well, I hope the same things for you. And I'm really grateful that you'd open up and tell us who you really are. Do you have any final thoughts for our audience? No, I mean, if you're interested in the work that we're doing, go on our website, sign up for our newsletter, donate to Psychedelic Medicine Advocacy. We're definitely in it for the long haul. I've called in all my favors <laughs> for um, my my friends here in DC. And I've I've really built a team of insiders around me who who know how to get the job done and know how the city works and we're going to have to play that political game and you know why I started the pack is like it's pay to play in in our political system and we're going to have to show some maturity and to show some community and how we're unified in this and you know we we are the vehicle to do it so um, if you feel compelled to support us please do so if you want more information about the work that we're doing on the Hill, yeah, we send out newsletters frequently and we like to keep everyone updated about what's going on. I know DC can be a bit of a, a black box at times. So our goal is to help translate what happens in DC for the average person who is maybe slightly familiar with how our government works, but also gets confused really easily because, you know, the media can, can drive the, a dialogue one way or another. But, you know, we are absolutely the DC resource for psychedelic space. So sign up and, and stay informed. We'll throw a whole bunch of links in the show notes for anybody that wants to follow up on everything Melissa was dropping right there. Okay. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast, my friend. Thanks for having me, Doc. Doc out. <laughs>